Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. My name's Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, once more, we're delving into our submissions of listener suggestions for some golden nuggets. But before we get into all that wonderful stuff, what is going on? We've been saying it for a little while now, but that beer moth is just about rising over the horizon. The final cutoff for submissions for the Blasphemous Tome, issue 11, is just about here. It sure is. The end of April is the cutoff point for submissions of written pieces up to around 500 words or pieces of artwork, either black and white or colour. And yeah, we've had a number of great submissions already at the time of recording. So uh, looking forward to seeing some of those in print in issue 11 of the Blasphemous Tome. Oh, fantastic. For anybody who doesn't know, that's our fanzine that we send out to uh, all our backers on PDF. And if you're at $5, then you're going to get a copy through your letterbox. (laughs) That sounds like a threat, Paul. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we're going to scribble all over it, a.k.a. sign it too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But we promise not to lick all of them. Mmm. Tasty. And speaking of things to look forward to, we also have a brand new Weekend with Good Friends coming up. So we have the dates pinned down now. The convention itself starts on Friday the 7th and wraps up on Sunday the 9th of July. It runs around the clock because, well, we have listeners all over the world and people on our Discord server from all over the world. And it takes place on our Discord server, organised by our lovely listeners. If you'd like to run a game, GM signups will be running between the 2nd and the 15th of June, and then once the organisers have had a chance to compile all those into the programme, you'll be able to sign up for games between Friday the 23rd and Thursday the 29th of June. I'll put a link in the show notes to the page with all the information on it, and also to our Discord server, where again all that information can be found. And this week, I was kindly interviewed by Henri Lovenbrook for his YouTube channel, D12 Cafe. Ah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun chatting to Henry um, about Call of Cthulhu and uh, lots of related things. So that is available both on YouTube and on Spotify as an audio podcast, obviously a video podcast on YouTube. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes on blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, Son of Listener Suggestions. In November of last year, which seems so long ago right now, we asked our listeners what they'd like to hear us discuss, and you delivered in spades. We started going through them back in episode 255, but barely scratched the surface. While the suggestions were excellent, not all of them would fill a full episode. We thought we'd take the approach of going through them on air, answering those we can address quickly, and picking up others for longer discussions later. Thank you very much to everyone who responded. Yes, we reached out to people on both Discord and Twitter. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. And we're still working through the Discord ones. We haven't even reached the Twitter ones yet. 
So starting off with Patrick Smatrick, cool name. Everybody seems to have cool names, apart from <laughs> me. I just use my name. He suggests, or, or they suggest, low mythos or no mythos scenarios where it is like background radiation in the game. And as a media example, True Detective. One there for Matt? No. We'll leave it there because his next suggestion is something different. Yes. This is quite different. Two different, two very yeah. different things, I Fair feel. Right. Low mythos is turning it down. No mythos is turning it off. So so we address them slightly separately. What about no mythos ones? Because that's, that's taking it to the limit. We've talked before about how Call of Cthulhu doesn't have to be mythos-based. I mean, when we talk about no mythos, it could mean that it's rooted in horror other than the Cthulhu mythos, like a traditional ghost story. Or it could mean that there's no fantastical or supernatural or weird elements at all. Yeah, so if you're not using any canon mythos, but you're making up your own mythos things, I think that's still mythos. It is. But if you're using like traditional vampires or ghosts, like you say, Scott, that's not mythos, but it is supernatural. But yes, that's a good distinction. If you're not using any supernatural, that's, an, that's yet another step. Yeah, and there have been collections published that address both of those. I mean, so, for example, you've got the Blood Brothers collections, mm. which are one-shots that are horror, but they don't use the Cthulhu mythos. They're much more like, you know, I think in a lot of cases, fairly campy horror films. They are specifically based on like B-movie horror or yeah. classic horror films. I thoroughly enjoyed Uncle Timothy's Will. Holly over at ITT ran that for us, which uh, spawned a long-running trope of mine that I have a universal lockpick, otherwise known as a sledgehammer, <laughs> which I uh, take to most problems quite adeptly. So for listeners who don't recognise the abbreviation there, ITD is Into the Darkness. Yeah, yeah, I'm just lazy, I say the initials. <laughs> And I know Pagan Publishing had a campaign called Coming Full Circle, which I ran, I don't know, a couple of decades ago. But ultimately, it felt a bit unsatisfying. It feels a bit like, I think if you're doing one like you just sort of mentioned, then if you go in knowing it's a non-mythos thing, great. If you go in expecting mm. it to be a mythos thing, it's a bit like going to see a Terminator film and Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger's not in it. It's a bit like, this isn't what I signed up for. So I think it needs to be either some heavy supernatural stuff, which you know feels a bit Lovecraftian or mythos. Otherwise, it feels a bit like, yeah, to me, a bit like the players were always looking for something that wasn't there. I played a game last year that Joe Trier ran I think we recorded it, but I don't think it's ever going to go out anywhere. We played it primarily for fun. Well, that won't catch on. <clears throat> Particularly seeing as I didn't enjoy the game very much. But <laughs> this is no reflection on Joe. Joe did, I think, a, a terrific job of running what was ultimately a very unsatisfying scenario. I won't mention the scenario, I mean, partly because I'm going to say fairly horrible things about it, and partly because it's a bit of a spoiler uh, for the scenario. But it's a scenario that doesn't have any mythos elements in it. And it's designed, however, to wrong-foot Call of Cthulhu players. And it's got all uh. sorts of red herrings in there and it's sort of, oh, look at this. This is obviously mythos. No, it's not. This is obviously mythos. No, it's not. And it feels like, for a start, the author thought he was being terribly clever about this. And it's sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, look, look at this. I'm going to wrong-foot you here. And then I'm going to wrong-foot you here. And then I'm going to wrong-foot you here. And then I'm going to wrong-foot you here. But 
ultimately, all of the reveals of what was really going on were completely unsatisfying. One was incredibly distasteful. It just felt like someone mm. being very smug. Mm. And I can see the appeal potentially as an intellectual exercise of writing a scenario like that, but it felt like the worst kind of bait and switch. Yeah, no, nobody plays a game for the reward of an intellectual exercise, or not mm. for fun anyway, do they? The whole thing just felt like not just kind of wrong-fitting or confusing the players, but actively undermining any enjoyment that they might have got out of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think like not only are you not getting what you were promised, you're like being teased with it as well, yes. um, which kind of just compounds the, the problem, doesn't it? So what are we talking about there? So what about a scenario and it's just a ghost story or it's just you know i'm saying just it's it is a traditional vampire story or a you know traditional kind of frankenstein story so, you know something of that ilk using traditional horrors i'd be all for that would you tell people this isn't a mythos game this is oh yeah yeah yeah, I, I've done this before, not with Call of Cthulhu, but with other Lovecraftian games where I've used the system to run stuff that very much is not Lovecraftian, where I've gone for kind of traditional gothic horrors. I recorded one with Grizzly Peaks Radio a little while back that I, I don't know should be going out in the not too distant future. I think as long as everyone has the right expectations, yeah, that's the thing. No one, I think, unless you're really good at it and the payoff is fantastic, enjoys a bait and switch game. But mm. if you set the expectations accordingly and sort of say, right, you know, this is the genre we're playing, this is the kind of thing to expect, then if the players are bought into that, then yeah, I'm just as happy playing a game that's got ghosts or vampires or other gothic horrors in it as I am with the, uh, the Lovecraftian mythos. What about you, Matt? How do you feel about that? I was actually thinking about an experience that, coincidentally, we just wrapped up last night. Again, it's actually Holly who ran this for us on Into the Darkness, so I won't reveal what the scenario is, just in case anyone hasn't played it. But I was quite surprised at the end of it that I found the scenario was actually based on... I'm probably going to mess this up. I think it's Michael Shea who wrote The Autopsy. Yes. Yeah. All right, there you go. It is based on that short story which after having watched the uh, Cabinet of Curiosities episode before, it was like suddenly the penny dropped. I thought, holy shit, why didn't I see this beforehand? <laughs> but it was presented in such a way that I just didn't make the connection between the two. So if you wrap it up as something a little bit different, but you can see kind of the key milestones of that story later on or key milestones of that particular monster or inspiration that you're drawing from, then I think it can work really well. I think maybe looking at some of the gothic monsters, though, looking at vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein, I think they've been done to death a bit too much mm. for my liking, that unless you do something really, really different with it, that's not going to appeal to me. But how is that different from Ghouls and Deep Ones and Mego? Because we've seen countless iterations of those through Call of Cthulhu scenarios. They're tackled unimaginatively. How is that any better or worse than vampires? What makes them interesting is what you do with them, the approach you take, the premise that you use for the scenario. The actual monsters are plot devices. And I don't think that a ghoul is any more inherently interesting than a vampire. Mm, mm. We've just seen good scenarios that use them. Mm. Yeah, I think chances are, if it's a fun game and you know, it's a good story and you know, you're all engaged with it, 
probably you're not going to worry about whether it's mythos or not because you're going to be enjoying yourself mm. if it kind of sucks then you're going to criticize it for some reason and that might be because it hasn't got mythos but maybe it had mythos anyway but yeah i think a good game is probably going to overcome the issue so when he says low mythos mm. i mean low mythos certainly i've written a number of horror scenarios where they weren't really they was supernatural but they weren't really mythos and then i kind of bolt a bit of mythos on just to, to tie it back to the mythos perhaps so i think you can definitely have you know you can have cthulhu turn up <laughs> that's like one end of the scale it's a bit like a dragon in dungeons and dragons very often a game of dungeons and dragons there's no dragon and sometimes there's no bloody dungeon <laughs> they're the best types <laughs> they really are not <laughs> i want my money back if that's the case uh, and call of cthulhu you know you can play a lot of games of call of cthulhu with no cthulhu heresy having cthulhu appear in the in your scenario in your campaign is like the definitive turning up to 11 i guess uh, yeah. and what's the other end of the scale like the the, the really low end of the scale Maybe you've got someone who's met a ghoul once or read Cult de Ghoul and is slowly turning into a ghoul, but is still fundamentally human. Yeah. And you have one of them in a scenario, one. <laughs> and perhaps an easier example to sell might be something involving a cult, because mm. you can have lots of cult-based scenarios where there's perhaps... You know, no magic or just hints of magic, things that could be weird coincidences, no monsters turn up. Maybe there are sinister pronouncements and strange beliefs, people doing really unpleasant, manipulative or violent things in the service of the cult. But ultimately, maybe there's nothing supernatural there or maybe the mm. supernatural or weird stuff you see is so ambiguous that it's it's just unsettling and i think that could be really quite creepy if handled in the right way i mean i could see it in the wrong way in that oh we get to the heart of the cult oh oh, oh there is nothing supernatural going on mm. it's just a con man and then depending on how that's handled you might feel a bit conned as a player a bit like you did in your game scott mm. but in other ways you know if if there's good content in there then I, I can see you being that being a rewarding thing in itself you know you've exposed a cult it seemed like as many of them do seem yeah they've i mean all the real world ones well not all of them well yeah probably all of them have some claim to you know what we might call magic whether that mm. be religious things or spiritual things or whatever but obviously that's all a facade but it's there mm. so you could have that in a game and i think you could have fun getting to the bottom of that yeah and i don't think it needs to be a con i think the more frightening cults or at least some of the really frightening cults are those where everyone involved does believe i think a true believer someone who has bought their own bullshit mm. is potentially more dangerous i don't think you need to pull back the curtain and sort of say, oh, right, yeah, the cult leader is just manipulating everyone and knows that it, that none of this stuff is real. If they believe that they truly are in contact with entities from beyond and getting all this divine wisdom and the secrets of the ages, yeah, that's still pretty scary. Yeah, that's, that's fine too. And it could be, you know, ultimately that could lead to an ambiguous ending mm. of they said it was all real. We can't find any proof it was, and we can't really disprove it either. Mm. 
And Patrick Smatrick also mentions time travel horror, loops, butterfly, etc. Media example, time crimes or Stephen King's The Jaunt. And well, this is one I don't think we need to discuss this too much because we've done a whole episode on it. Now, has it actually gone out yet? No, it hasn't. We have a forthcoming episode on it. I suppose appropriately for an episode about time travel, we <laughs> recorded this one in advance of the episode that we're recording now, which is going out before the time travel episode. But we have done a double episode on time travel that will be going out very shortly after this. You know what we should have done? We should have mentioned in the time travel episodes thinking, you know what, wouldn't it be good if we went and did another episode <laughs> of all the listener suggestions to make it a nice little recursive loop? Yes. <laughs> Next from Santa Claus, again, putting us to shame here because I also just use my name as my handle on Discord. <laughs> I'd love some deity episodes on Sathogwa, Yig, and Cthulhu. And if you take suggestions for a new series, maybe episodes devoted to specific monsters like you do deities, like a whole episode devoted to ghouls, dark young, hounds, he says doing his best Dr. Evil impression here, <laughs> because that might be coming up later as well, etc. We received this before we did the episode on Sarthokyo, so we have now covered Sarthokyo. Mm. But the other ones, Yig and Cthulhu, we haven't got planned yet, but may well be in the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all on our big long list. Cthulhu's going to be a tricky one to do because I, I'm not sure there's that much to say about Cthulhu. Not the first time we've said this. Uh, well, so that's why some of the episodes we've done about mythos deities have been about more than one deity, because sometimes there's not that much to say on a, a given one. The monsters gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, I think we could do the same thing with um, some of the monsters that uh, we do with the deities. We did do a little overview of our favourite monsters, God, all the way back in episode 62. We've never really, I guess, done entire episodes devoted to particular monsters, and I think that's probably quite a good idea. Maybe once we run out of the Lovecraftian deities, because I think we're coming to the end of ones that it's going to be interesting to talk about. And God knows there's plenty of them out there, but most of them are just like one-line descriptions and stories of, ooh, is an oozing pool of darkness. And I don't think we really need to cover all of those. <laughs> Yeah, I think there are some deities that are in the rule book that aren't that much more than that. Whereas mm. some of the the monsters, there's much more material on. So if we look at deep ones, for example, mm. I mean, there's there's a rich background to those that Lovecraft presents us with. The same with ghouls, probably less so with many other. I mean, elder things, um, the Ithians. There's quite a rich background, particularly when other authors have also used them. That's it. Yeah, I think more than the gods, the monsters that Lovecraft created, the smaller scale things, have been picked up by so many other authors and developed in interesting ways, or in deep ones particularly, but any number of them, I think get reused and reinvented and recreated much more than the gods do. I think it's hard to know what to do with a god often. Yeah. The ones that I'd like to dig into a bit more, we'll have to go through the uh, Malice Monstorum and see what the entries say for them. But it'd be mm. nice to have ones where it doesn't just have the line, oh, this god doesn't have anything of a human cult. I want to mm. see the human face of what these groups worship some of these gods as and how they differ from each other. Yeah. I don't think you need to take that as gospel, what's in the Malice there. I think if you want to 
create your own human cults of these these deities that don't apparently have mm. human cults, by all means, go for it. Yeah, it should be, in some cases, pretty obvious as to the kinds of cults you can create. No, I completely agree, but it'd be nice to see the stuff that's actually set down there already in print, see the kind of variety that's already presented and maybe use that as a springboard to then think of how you can do something similar with the other ones that mm. don't have such things. Okay, yeah, so good suggestions there about more episodes on deities, which we have either already done or are forthcoming, and the idea of doing some episodes about specific monsters. Yeah, I think that gets a thumbs up. Or two tentacles up. <laughs> Indeed. Aha, uh -huh. and one here from, in fact, one of our moderators on the Discord server, Etymological Tom. Well, his first suggestion is November and the use of folklore in horror. We did actually discuss November, oh gosh, in episode 10 of the Back of Specials back in 2020. That's the 2017 Estonian folk horror film. Oh. Really weird one, which I, I talked about when we were discussing the films we've been watching. There was me just thinking it was the month of November and its influence in folklore. <laughs> But generally, folklore and horror, we did do an episode on folk horror, but I suppose hmm. that's a bit different from folklore in horror. They're, they're obviously two related subjects, but the use of folklore to inspire horror isn't necessarily folk horror and vice versa. One of the things I've been doing recently in my uh, effort to uh, embrace my completionism and get another bibliomancy charge is I've been going through and buying the whole set of Folklore, the History Press put out a few years back, that gives each UK county, I think there's about three counties they're missing anyway, but anyway, they've done books on folklore of specific counties all across the UK, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. So I've been mm. slowly buying those up and filling a cabinet with them. Now, are they like counties as they are at present? Because you said there's three missing, but the counties have changed over the years, haven't they? So... Is that does that account for the fact some are missing or no? It's just I think certain regions they haven't done right. They've generally stuck to the more traditional counties, so like Northamptonshire, Buckinghamshire, Bedfordshire. But there are a couple that break that mould where you've got London is its own book, the Isle of Man, although that's technically a separate region anyway. But they've also got the New Forest, while they've also got Hampshire and Dorset. So yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's a few which kind of cross boundaries. Oh, and they kind of cover like the folklore of. You know, say Buckinghamshire, where I live. That's actually one I've brought specifically because I'm running some stuff that's not anything for publication, but I'm running some stuff based in Bucks that I've decided to draw some local folklore into. Oh, Things like the history, apparently, of how the devil rode into Olney and took up residence <laughs> at a house there. Brilliant. Yeah, there's all, all these little things that I think are fantastic little nuggets that you can use as inspiration for stories. And if you want to use it in terms of Call of Cthulhu, you can put a mythos mask over the top of that, yeah. or you can just do it as a horror scenario. I mean, it's a fantastic resource. I'd be interested in particularly looking at the one in Buckinghamshire, yeah, because that's where I live. But I guess this almost echoes back to what we were talking about with no mythos and low mythos scenarios, in that... Particularly for Call of Cthulhu, if you want to do stuff based on folklore, then you can present it as being entirely rooted in that folklore, or as Paul suggested, that there is some kind of mythos undercurrent to the whole thing that is the, the horrible truth behind it all. And I think both approaches are interesting. Mm. 
I think in Call of Cthulhu, we very much default to the latter, that we see a bit of interesting folklore and sort of think, oh, right, yeah, how can I add tentacles to that? But again, we don't have to. It actually works quite as a nice way to build Vason scenarios, because that's very much based on folklore. Although mm. in, if you go by the default version of that game, it's very much Swedish folklore and uh, fairy tales from that part of the world. Although they have done a British uh, source book for that as well. But I always default to Sweden because I think it's a much more interesting and richer environment to draw from because their folklore is very, very different to ours. Mm. One other aspect of it that I think we've touched upon in a very early episode but haven't really dug into is where you've got folk magic and you know little spells and and rituals and protections and charms and so on that you get in folklore things like the sign of the evil eye or herbalism or so on and how you address that in call of cthulhu i've seen two very divergent opinions on this over the years one is obviously all of this stuff is nonsense and therefore it's not related to mythos magic it doesn't have any real power yes all right you can cast a spell and summon a bayaki but whatever rituals you learned from your grandmother unless they're rooted in the mythos won't actually do anything for you and the other is the idea of there being folk magic in Call of Cthulhu that actually has some real effect but isn't rooted in the mythos. And I've never been able to make up my mind about which one of those I prefer. Mm. I think in the Grand Grimoire, there was a category of folk magic mm. that Mike put in there specifically for certain types of spells. Mm. I mean, I guess it depends largely on what you present the Cthulhu mythos as being in your games because if you think of it being very much alien technology and this science fictional setting where you have these layers of folklore and occultism that have been placed over the top of something that is just simply multi-dimensional geometry and different perceptions of time and space and creatures who transcend the natural laws and barriers that we perceive as humans then there's nothing inherently magical about any of that we see it all presented through the lens of magic because that's how we as humans make sense of it but it is not magical and if you're taking that kind of approach i can see very much folk magic may make you feel better but it doesn't actually do anything but yeah it doesn't have to be that there's your mythos and do what you want with it a tricky one but the influence of orientalism on hp dunzany and others and how can we do better I think the last answer to that is easily, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I think as with anything where you're referring to other cultures and, and so on, then a degree of sensitivity and understanding and not simplifying and, and patronising other cultures and societies is, is the answer to that. When we're dealing with Call of Cthulhu and particularly the pulp magazines that it draws upon, these magazines, these stories were absolutely seeped in Orientalism. Where they presented other cultures, they were presented, well, for a start, inaccurately, but also in very exotic terms that may 
have been culturally insensitive and quite harmful in ways, but on the other hand, also perhaps lent a certain flavour and texture to the stories that it's sometimes difficult to reproduce or capture without leaning into harmful stereotypes. And it's something I struggle with sometimes. When do you struggle with it? So let's say, for example, you've got, say, something like the Egypt chapter of Masks of Nyarlathotep. There are all Mm. sorts of tropes you could draw upon from the pulp fiction of the time with sort of evil Egyptian sorcerers and rituals rooted in the days of the pharaohs and stuff like that, which would be perhaps very accurate to the pulps and quite cool in the way that they're presented, but have got perhaps no foundation in the actual culture or misrepresent the culture in in quite unhelpful ways. And it's a question of how you perhaps keep some of that sense of mystery and magic without falling into those lazy stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, you think you can have your evil Egyptian sorcerer, same as you can have an evil American sorcerer, but I think it's more how you broadly portray the society and the individuals therein. You know, so if they're all like that, you know, misrepresented. I'm not explaining it very well, but it's not so much the fact that that character exists, but it's the iconography that goes with that and the, yeah, and so on. Yeah, that kind of stereotyping. A lot of it just comes down to research. What a lot of the pulp writers did was just make shit up because, well, you know, they were getting paid a certain number of cents per word and people wanted to read lively adventure stories and they didn't care whether the presentation of Egyptian mythology and society and so on was accurate. But now, if you did that with the resources that we've got available to us, people would quite rightly object. And, you know, I think there is a a responsibility to research and think about what you're presenting in your your scenarios, in your games. Hmm. I just try to solve the issue by just not going anywhere near it at all. If there's anything that I worry about that could be considered, is this going into stereotype territory, I will veer as far away from it as I possibly can, because I don't want to tread in that minefield. Hmm. The problem is that it's a very difficult circle to square for writers like us, potentially, because you don't necessarily want to have every story set in Arkham or or London. You want to have scenarios set in different parts of the world and bring in the elements of those cultures. You want to have people who aren't directly like us as non-player characters. Mm. And it's a question of doing the research to present their cultures uh, and attitudes and beliefs accurately well i think there's two things there you can do as you say scott you can do your research to try and present those things accurately but once you've done your research and you've written it you can also run it past a sensitivity reader Mm -hmm. somebody from that culture for them to read it and give you feedback on on what you've done that that's not always finding somebody appropriate and they're not just going to want to necessarily do that for free. So, um, you know, paying them and and so on. So there's quite a lot to that, but that's another mechanism that you can use to try and sort of counter this and particularly the the kind of unconscious biases that one might hold. No, I completely agree. It's it's certainly something when I've been doing some work for cult, 
where having a sensitivity reader is a pretty much a must if you mm -hmm. touch on certain topics or you touch on certain groups then wholeheartedly yes but as my default if i worry that this is a material that unless i've got a really strong story to tell i will try and avoid that minefield wherever i can do because i don't yeah. i don't want to accidentally step on something and really piss someone off yeah no i can understand that yeah yeah Sensitivity readers have become something of a hot-button issue, and there are certain writers, and certainly a lot of fans, who get very angry about the very concept of sensitivity readers because they feel that somehow this is diluting the product, which I think is utter bullshit. Would they prefer insensitivity readers? I think some of them absolutely <laughs> would, yes. This isn't offensive enough. You need to have 10% more racism. But I think part of it is what you consider you know, the role of a sensitivity reader to be. Because I think that term itself doesn't necessarily help too much. Mm. I mean, when I think of a sensitivity reader, if I were passing my manuscript on to someone in that capacity, I'd be thinking of it more like a fact checker than tone police. Yeah, sensitivity implies in some ways it perhaps implies weakness mm. so yeah i can kind of see how some people might take against that as a as a term but it's just a term for what it is i think fundamentally it's the same people who get angry about content warnings i'm pretty sure they're the kind of people that would say sensitivity reading that's woke <laughs> <laughs> as a bad thing yes. you know uh and you know that I've, yeah i'm sure we've all got opinions on that i think we should probably move on We've got through some good topics. We've got more to come after this short break. Have you visited our Redbubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. Are you looking for a D&D &D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. And you're back listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, where we're going through the son of listener suggestions, taking in more good stuff from all our listeners. And this one from Weasels 10. I don't know what happened to Weasels 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and so on, but... We don't speak of that. <laughs> we don't speak of that. The wounds are still too fresh. No, okay. I mean, they might be there for all now. I know. They might be there. Weasel 10 says, this may be too similar to stuff you've talked about before i mean the chances of that are quite good but i was we've been going nearly 10 years that's never stopped us indeed but i was thinking a discussion on bleakness stroke no win stroke dark endings in role-playing games would be helpful i mean mm. yep just hand over to scott for the whole thing <laughs> i can think of at least two recently published scenarios that have a kind of no win base version but they say something like you know your group, and here's a different version stroke ending if you don't think they would like this. But even knowing my group, I think that's a pretty hard thing to judge, since it's not something they've really experienced before. Mm. 
I certainly don't like playing no-win scenarios. To me, it almost feels like, why don't I just read a story where it's going to have the one set ending where they're never going to win? I'm not seeing it in films. I don't mind reading it in books. But as a game, I feel like it's kind of, well, what's the point in playing? Not really a game, is it? No. You're going to play this game. You're going to lose, but you're going to play. Yeah, again, it's just, what is the point? I don't think no-win means that there's only one possible outcome. I think you can mm. fail and be destroyed in a number of different ways. So I'd argue with that. But I think for all my reputation for running dark and nihilistic games, I think I've only ever actually written one no-win scenario for publication. Because I always think it's crueler to offer some hope. I want people to feel like there is a way out of the horrible situation their characters are in, but just make it really, really difficult, make it really unlikely. Sure, nine times out of ten, if I run the scenario, it's going to end horribly for the player characters, but there's always that chance that if they do just the right things and if they think things through and if the dice are kind to them, that you know, there they may be some people left at the end to tell the tale. But they probably won't be. Yeah, that's much more my kind of thing. Having characters die at the end, I mean, that's mm. not really any big deal, I don't think. Yeah. It's not a selling point yeah. that everybody dies at the end. As you say, Scott, often when we come to the end of a game, well, maybe it's not like, well, it's an end that we decide is an end, and then we'll sort of say, oh, what happens, what do we think happens to your characters after this? So we explore the, the fates of the player characters, the investigators perhaps, and they can be... They can have very desperate, dire ends and the, and the player character can enjoy participating in mm. narrating that end. I suppose if it's set up in such a way that there's a clear goal that you're trying to win, that you're trying to stop Mr. Evil doing this thing. And if there's no mechanism in the game for you to stop Mr. Evil doing that thing, it's like, well, mm. yeah, how were we supposed to do that? Oh, you weren't. Well, okay. But I think that's less a problem with dark endings, more a problem with lack of agency. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think that can be implied in no win, can't it? It can mm. sometimes be no agency. You know, you, you're going to go through my story. There's no way you're going to actually change the ending is, is one version of no win. But that's not a good version of no win, I suppose. Well, I think being given the license to be the agent of your own destruction is far more interesting. And as long as you have players who buy into that, that can be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And also the win, you know, it could be that you're winning for everybody else. You know, you're saving mm. a friend, the world, whatever it is, but you're saving something. It might be, well, whatever it might be. But at the cost of your own well-being, perhaps life, perhaps sanity, perhaps whatever goodness there is left for you in the world is going to be gone if you make this choice but if it's a choice you make as a player then that kind of is a win i think or it's a win for your investigator even but uh it doesn't personally leave them in a good space but it is heroic mm -hmm. potentially and also you know as i mentioned i think realizing that it wasn't no win can be nastier i recently 
finally got round to recording Lampposts in Bloom, uh, an unknown army scenario I wrote as a convention game, oh gosh, 15 years or more ago. And I recorded that with Ain't Slayed Nobody. We put it out last month at the time of recording. And I mean, it's gone down very well. And the players, we were discussing it afterwards, had assumed that they were in a no-win situation and they had done some fairly horrible things as a result, uh, thinking that there was no way to actually resolve the situation in a positive way. And after the game, I then explained to them a couple of things that they'd perhaps missed or overlooked that could have led them to a less nihilistic and horrible outcome. And that made things so much worse for them because it was suddenly, oh shit, what, we could have saved, oh, oh no, oh no. (laughs) Well, I think it's unfortunate with Call of Cthulhu that sometimes people, players, do get partway through the game and then figure, oh, there is no way to avert this thing or there is no way Mm. to find a good outcome. And sometimes I felt like saying to them as keeper to players, you can like, alter this you can save yourselves and sometimes Mm. i have sort of perhaps said that in game because this i think perhaps they've learned that from other experiences where oh this is a game where there's there's no hope and you know we're all just gonna die anyway and we can't win in inverted commas and sometimes people just resign themselves to that yeah it's an allegory for life there somehow but But I think there's also a certain amount of fun in playing quixotic characters, people who do tilt at windmills, people who fight against odds that they're never going to beat. Oh, for sure. Maybe you are going to lose, but that doesn't mean that the fight can't be fun. Hmm. And moving on, we've got another suggestion from Orbital Axolotl. This might be a hard sell for some of the hosts, i.e. me, because I read ahead. <laughs> but as you've done to violence in RPGs, I'd love to hear an episode about handling sex at the table. I think it's just as inherent to horror as violence, but it's a tricky one to bring to the table at all. How can it be used in games? Scott mentioned on the Agolak episode he's happy to bring it to the table as a theme as long as it's not sexual violence. Damn 100% right. Plenty of horror films, some of my favourites in fact, deal heavily with sexual themes, yet I'm not sure it's something I'd want to bring to the table. Hell yeah. Even say Cult, that has some graphic art, and I personally hunted down a Kickstarter version to get it uncensored. Yep, more dicks per square inch than you'll find in the regular one. (laughs) But I would bring that level of raw sexuality to the table? Question mark. I'm not sure. Could be nice to also do an episode on safety tools around the same time as those two topics are linked. And that would be the longest title episode we've ever had. (laughs) So you've got a new definition for DPI, Matt. Yeah, dicks per square inch. Because, <laughs> oh boy, there are so many penises in that book. <laughs> well, so this is a big topic. About six inches long. So we did an episode on extreme subjects in gaming back in episode 97, where I think we touched upon sex in games, though we didn't go into it in great detail. But we did, I'm, I'm pretty sure, cover safety tools at the time. I guess perhaps discussion on safety tools has moved on a bit since then, because that was six years ago, so it might be worth revisiting at some stage. Yeah, there's certainly a wide variety of them out there, Mm. of many different 
forms. I mean, I still kind of favor the X card for its simplicity, uh, yeah. its ease of explanation for what it, its function in the game. But you've got lines and veils that you can have that discussion at the start. But I feel like a lot of those things you don't know as keeper. You can know what's in the scenario, what's written in the scenario. You don't know what you're going to improvise, mm. but also more importantly than that, I think you don't know what your players are going to improvise. Yeah, You may have somebody with a great aversion to something in the game, but it might not occur to anybody, mm. even them, prior to the game. Or you can get some edgelord player who doesn't care about other people's potential boundaries. I don't think any safety tool is going to counter for somebody being a dick. So you can have all the safety tools you like, apart from Big Hammer to hit them on the head with. That's the real safety yeah. tool, maybe. We call it the ban hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So sex at the table, that just sounds... Painful without cushions. Good or bad, depending on your point of view. But at the gaming table, um, yeah, how do we handle sex as a theme or as a, an actuality in the game? Yeah. Okay, I would say I don't tend to handle it as an actuality. Mm. I mean, I, I think it is a key part of pretty much every soap opera, but unless you're watching, I don't know, your soap operas on Pornhub, you're probably not seeing like actual <laughs> sex on the screen. Um, so you're seeing like, you know, two of them disappear into the bedroom while they kiss. And then we see them smoking a cigarette or they're at the breakfast table or whatever. That's how I portray it or have seen it portrayed in a game like Apocalypse World where it has mechanics for sex. And I think sometimes people take that as meaning, oh my God, we got to portray our characters having sex. It doesn't mean that. It means no. that if your character and my character are getting on, the question might arise, do they have a sexual relationship? And if they do, you know, fade to black and, you know, we're both getting out of the caravan or whatever afterwards and um i don't know why that came to mind and then <laughs> but that has a mechanical effect on our characters now you know as a, yeah. if your character has sex with another character tick this box it's done this thing to the relationship between the characters which is cool relationships between player characters is very important and that has a mechanical effect on the traits the bonds between those two characters which i think is is a very interesting aspect of the game but we haven't portrayed it on stage but you know i mean if we think about buffy for example mm. when the characters have sex we don't see it but it's, it changes the plot dramatically at, at times oh god yes i think i've made my case on this i still find something abhorrent about having a mechanical effect regarding that especially when it's between pcs i just don't want to go anywhere near that stuff so i won't play those games i won't run those games it won't appear in games i write so that's a just a verboten issue for me. I don't want to go anywhere near it. Okay. But sex doesn't have to necessarily mean sex between player characters. It's how it affects the overall game and the overall scenario. I accept that. I, it's specifically when it comes to having a mechanical advantage of that happening between PCs. I just Something instinctively says no for me. I will quite happily write it into backgrounds of pre-gen characters. That's fine because that's relationship building. But when it comes to having some kind of active say specifically mechanical benefit no absolute no it's not even a mechanical benefit is how it changes the relationships between characters mechanically and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to reflect in games because a relationship becoming sexual does change the nature of it it changes the people involved 
And we yeah, I don't think reflecting that in the game is somehow distasteful. Your aversion to sex in games does surprise me a little bit, Matt, because, I mean, for a start, Willoughby stains, but yeah. <laughs> You played a character who went through Spirit of the Century <laughs> fucking every monster in sight. <laughs> he fucked ghouls, he fucked monkeys, he fucked... Uh, a T-Rex. <laughs> he tried to fuck a Velociraptor and then he died giving a blowjob to a T-Rex. Yeah, because they aren't player characters. <laughs> I will quite happily indulge in that because that was innuendo and comedy and very much taken to an extreme. But the key thing for me, it was not a player character. <laughs> Okay. More seriously, with Cult, for example, considering how much Cult draws upon Clive Barker, I mean, Clive Barker's stories are horny as fuck. They just ooze sexuality both literally and figuratively. I think it's very difficult to extract that kind of horror from sexuality to differentiate the two. There was this whole thing in the 1980s, particularly in the aftermath of the Books of Blood, where there was a lot of very sexually explicit horror, not just sexually explicit horror, but horror where sexuality was an essential part of the horror. For example, there was the whole Hot Blood series of, of anthologies. But, you know, any number of writers, particularly British writers working in that field, uh, Robert Aikman, I mean, his his stories are absolutely filled with sexuality all the way through. And even going back to things like uh, Carmilla, it's, it's been an essential part of horror all the way through. And I think at least avoiding addressing that or at least avoiding incorporating that into into games is removing one of the central strands of horror fiction that's been there, well, since the beginning. Yeah, by all means do that, just don't put mechanics on it. So just an, as an example, because if you're not familiar with these games, you might be wondering what we mean by mechanical effects in games like Apocalypse World. Well, there's another game, Monster Hearts, which mm. is based on Apocalypse World, powered by the Apocalypse game. So if you play a character called the Fae, it says if you lie naked with another, basically if you have sex with someone, you can ask them for a promise. If they refuse, take two strings on them. And strings are like mechanical, you can use them later for like mechanical bonuses against other characters. To influence them in conflicts, basically. Yeah. The ghost, I've not checked this one. When you have sex with someone, you both get to ask a question of one another's characters. This can be spoken by your character or simply asked player to player. The other person must answer honestly and directly. So they're not necessarily sexual things at all their intimacy yeah they, they affect the relationship and the intimacy between players so they can i guess they're a way of moving the plot on which if your character and mm. my character have sex well wow great so what but in drama usually that start of relationship has an effect on the story ongoing and the, and the mechanics kind of reflect that i suppose the way Matt was talking about it before misrepresented what the role of this is in the game. It's not like a buff. It's not like we had sex, now my cock is turbocharged. It's become a literal magic wand. Shoot from the hip. <laughs> yes, it's become like a Roman candle. <clears throat> but no, no, it's, it, it is that it's 
reflecting the intimacy of the situation and the shifting relationships between characters that have come out as a result of that. And I think that's an important differentiation to make. I think there's a premise in this question, an assumption in this question, which I would challenge. I think it's just as inherent horror as violence is. And as a theme, it crops up in quite a few, quite a lot of horror films. But I don't think it crops up as much as violence does. So if you look at the many of the, the top-rated horror films, like in the top 10 lists, we've got things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, The Thing, Alien. We can find in some of those sex is a theme. Yeah. But it's it's one of the strings to the bow, if you like. But violence is a more common one. I think it's that sex tends to be there as subtext much more. This is partly due to the history of media censorship in the 20th century. But it is, I think, very present in a lot of horror as a subtext. I mean, you talk about, for example, Alien there. Alien is not a sexually explicit film, but at the same time, it is absolutely a film about sexual violence and forced pregnancy. As a result, there is the sexual subtext there, or at least sexual violence subtext there, that is explored perhaps as viscerally as, as if it were done directly. And I think this is the case with a lot of horror. I mean, even if you're going back to the Gothics, let's say Dracula, for example. Dracula is absolutely dripping with sexual subtext. There's very little direct sex in the story, but as far as it's shaping the horror is concerned, the story wouldn't exist and certainly wouldn't exist in that form without the sexual subtext. So I think it's fair to say that it's as inherent to horror. It's just portrayed differently. The violence is on the surface. The sexuality tends to be under it. Is there a lot of sex in Dawn of the Dead? But it's kind of necrophilia. I'm pretty sure I had a friend at school that said all Pink Floyd's albums were about venereal disease. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so what disease makes your Floyd go pink? I <laughs> Um, I do agree that, that sex is a theme in them. I mean, like you say, it's perhaps a subtext, but often it is about sexual violence or the threat of sexual violence, sometimes manifest in the film, sometimes, sometimes not. But I think it's often that's another part of violence as well. Yes, but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that deals with fears of intimacy, uh, reproductive fears. And sometimes that's just a way of like, getting young people together at the start of Jaws or the start of Friday the 13th. And there's that, oh, they're going to have sex. Oh, they're going to get killed. You know, <laughs> they're, they're the ones that die first. On your point regarding Dawn of the Dead, I can think of there's the relationship between Flyboy and his other half, who I can't remember the character's name now, but also that she, I believe, is pregnant. So there is at least that undercurrent through the story rather than it being explicit. Plus, what is zombieism but a disease that's being passed through extreme hickeys? I was just thinking, someone in there gets done with a drill, I'm sure. So do we want to see more sex at the game table? Nope. No, because that's just a recipe for getting D20s stuck in awkward places. <laughs> at least it ain't a D4. <laughs> <laughs> Although you might be into some of that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's not kink shame anyone. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. 
You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. Thank you to all the wonderful people who sent us questions. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yes, thank you very much to Chris Hunning. And thank you much here. And I'm going to put the emphasis on the first part of this rather than the last part of this. Super average. And thank you very much to Neil Townsend. And thanks to Snivergrits. And thank you very much to the singular Gavin. And thank you very much to Xander Ford. And thanks to Lex. Thank you very much also to Targrad. And thank you finally to Matthew Edward Yeoman. Again, great first name there. I'm sure we get more Matthews than Pauls. <laughs> Come on, Pauls. <laughs> All the Pauls of the world. This is a call to action. Yeah, come on, support. And surprisingly few Scots. Yeah, that is surprising. I did see a study a while back that charted the popularity of the name Scott over the years. I thought it was going to be mental capacity. <laughs> oh, God, no. Okay. No, that's off the charts. <laughs> yeah, I'll accept it's off the charts. <laughs> it did seem to peak around the time I was born in the mid-60s and has been declining since then. Oh, I think it's probably on its way back. There did seem to be a resurgence back in the, the 80s, but... Well, I'm sure lots of listeners are probably naming their offspring after you, Scott. <laughs> As yeah. we speak, yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to say it peaked about nine months before you arrived. We're back to sex at the table. On that bombshell. But yes, if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where podcast reviews might be found or just letting people who are interested in this kind of thing know about it if you're talking to them on social media. If you just get the good word of Jackson out there, we will do the rest. And if you want to give us any more listener suggestions, they are more than welcome. You know, suggestions for topics for us to discuss, because... I have to say, I really enjoy doing these episodes. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's a kind of a, a freewheeling thing where we get to talk about these topics without the constraint of time, but also without having to judge whether this episode is worthy of a whole episode yes. or not. Um, it just gives us the opportunity to, to talk about it and explore it and, and give it some consideration, which is fun and hopefully fun to listen to. <laughs> it's also a great part for the audience to really get involved. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. And you've been listening to Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.